Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn to uh, the scripture for today, which you'll find uh, on, uh, in, in the book of Matthew. Uh, if you can follow along, if you're using the bulletin in some fashion or a Bible near you, turn to Matthew 1. We're going to, we've been alluding to this particular section of Scripture the last couple of weeks in our series on glad tidings of great joy, uh, where we've been looking at, as it were, the mothers of Jesus, uh, which are, it's historically, theologically referred to as the mothers of Jesus, because not that he had more than one mother, but that his, but that his genealogy contains the names of several women, which was very unusual in its day and age. Uh, very unusual in, the, in respect that, uh, that uh, women were not greatly um, included in any stretch. Uh, they're, they're the ones giving birth, but they weren't the ones that were named in any sort of record of, of uh, and, and, and genealogies were greatly used as a bit of a resume for greatness, a resume for usefulness and vitality. Um, and Jesus is no, no different. Matthew is laying out the genealogy to suggest that Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus is, in fact, who we need him to be, and it is, bare, it is borne out through history. And yet he specifically draws upon a variety of names here, some of which are, uh, uh, would have made it in, in its day uh, very, very shocking to have women's names and these mothers, as it were. And today we're going to look at this next uh, mother of Christ uh, as we see her mentioned. So I'm going to ask you to follow along as we read the section, just a couple of paragraphs out of this, uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 6, and then uh, 12 through 17 as we go. So follow along. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Jump down just a little bit. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus." who is called Christ. Thus, there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 
14 from David to the exile of Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is God's Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you give us yourself in the person of your Son, for this is what we need. Nothing less would accomplish redemption. Nothing less would would uh, be for us uh, powerful. Father, I pray that it would be as powerful today in our hearing as it was in its enacting. Do that for your namesake and for the greatness of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This, these kinds of passages, these kinds of places in Scripture, the stuff you skip over when you read, isn't it? When you're reading the Bible and you get to the generations in Genesis and when you get to the generations, especially in Leviticus, and you're just reading name upon name upon name, and especially when they get very difficult to pronounce you, I mean, you might start out well, but then you kind of get and you go, ah, let's move on, skip, skip past the names and jump to the, jump to the narrative again, jump to the stuff that's important, as it were, and so you skip over names. However, the thing about that is it doesn't really, it doesn't really fit that idea. It's tedious to read those names and I get why we skip it, and I've done it a thousand times in my own experience historically, but it doesn't, it doesn't really fit with the practicality and with the relevance of the way you live your life, does it? I mean, think of it this way. I remember my grandmother, when I told her that my name was in the paper as a graduate of sixth grade elementary school, she grabbed the newspaper from my grandfather who was reading legitimate stories, and she searched and searched until she found my name and highlighted it with a highlighter. Why? Because my name was more important than all the other stories that that newspaper had contained? No, it's because she had a personal connection with her grandson. It's because her grandson did something that she was very excited about. She wanted to make note of it, and she was going to look through all the names. And you don't you do it at graduation when you get the program? You're going to sit there for two and a half hours, you know, or, or uh, uh, ballet recitals, which I've been to any number of, uh, and I love them all. And I will go on saying that I love them all. And you look at the program, and it's two and a half to three hours, and you look at the program, and there are tons of names, and you're hearing the speakers, and you're seeing the names, and you get to the name of the person that's most meaningful to you. You want to make sure they spelled it right. You want to make sure what order they're in. When, do they, when are they going to cross the stage? Right before? Yeah. Right after? And there's a sense where the thing that's, the thing that's in, uh, engaging, the, part of the reason I think we skip over this is that we don't know the names. They're not personal to us. They're not, you know, but the thing about the scriptures, the thing about the story of redemption is that God includes the names of the people he loves. For him, he's highlighting every single one of these. They're all his children. They're all his grandchildren. He's like, here's Zerubbabel, Yeah. The other thing about these genealogies is that, and what it makes me think of, I thought, I thought about this this week. It's probably because we got a, we got a, a, a couple of half dozen of uh, Christmas cards this week. I don't know if that's been your experience. And, um, 
and a, and a couple of them had uh, Christmas letters in them. Do you write Christmas letters? I don't know if you do. Uh, Becky and I have, have d- done, done that any given year. We generally haven't done it recently in, in the last bunch of years, partly because I have a bit of a, I have a, bit of a, of a love-hate relationship with Christmas letters. Now, I'm going to say something, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Christmas letters. I know some people love them, but I, I, for, the, for, the, for the point of illustration, part of, the, part of the, we love them generally, but there's a little piece of them that when, we, when we've written them, when we read them, they're, all, they're wonderful. We can't not read them. We love them. But when we've written them, there's a sense where when we write them, what we're, what we're doing is we're skipping a stone across the surface of our lives and sort of bragging about the good things that happened. You know, so-and-so got into Yale University. That didn't happen in our lives, but I'm just using it as a generic. No one, no one in my life got into Yale University. You know, so-and-so got a raise. So-and-so got a promotion. So-and-so excelled in, you know, uh, was number one in their class. Number, I mean, was, and there's a sense where Christmas letters often sort of paint a very rosy picture of a person's life, and they're meant to sort of inform about how you did and how the year went just to kind of keep people up to date. And if you were to include all of the mess, which is predominantly what our, you know, there's a lot of mess, with a couple of highlights. If you included all the mess, the letter would almost be certainly very discouraging maybe, right? So you include the bright spots and it's the season of light and it's the season of Christmas and it's a joy forever and you want to include the high spots to be uplifting. And Jesus, this genealogy, this Christmas letter that Jesus sends is not nearly that way. Jesus' Christmas letter includes the mess. Jesus' genealogy, and here's why that's encouraging, is because Jesus tells the whole story, not just the bright spots. And the mother that we're thinking of here, her name isn't mentioned specifically, and there's a reason for that. And the mother that we are most focused on today, or that we want to take a look at, is found in verse, verse 7. It says... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, David's, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife, her, Uriah's wife's name was Bathsheba. And the thing about these images, these people's names, uh, they, 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 this genealogy highlights as like a Christmas letter, it highlights the story. It evokes the whole image of what went on. It, it evokes the epic in history to remind us of certain valuable moments, valuable aspects of what Christ has come to do and what the gospel and what Christmas is all about. And the epic of the story of Bathsheba It's the story of injustice, forgiven, and restored. That's the the nature of what this story is meant to evoke, the the, the nature of injustice. The thing about about the story of Bathsheba and the thing that is most striking is her name is not mentioned, and you might think that's meant to be offensive. We're not going to mention her name, Bathsheba. Because when you hear her name, what do you think of? 
in your mind. You don't have to tell me. Please don't shout anything. It might be pandemic, but we're still Presbyterians here. When you hear the name Bathsheba, what, what immediately comes to your mind? And I would challenge you that if anything other than injustice comes to your mind, you're not seeing the story accurately. Because her name is not mentioned, and part of why Matthew doesn't mention her name is because this, that story isn't predominantly about what Bathsheba did. It's about what David did. Because in the story, as it originally was told, in, in, as it originally happened in 2 Samuel, the story wasn't about what Bathsheba did because Bathsheba did nothing. She was living her life. She was doing what, what she's supposed to be doing. She was living honorably. And David, David abused her. He abused her. With his, he abused his position of authority. He abused his, he, he abused his position morally. He abused her physically, sexually, culturally, economically. In every way, David took advantage of her. And every element of that story, it is a story of injustice. The king sees someone and decides he can have her if he wishes. Why? How in, the world would, how in the world would David ever come to that conclusion? How would David ever get to the place where he would feel as though he could objectify another human being and just have her for himself? He was king. And as it says, as, as historians have said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And even in the best and brightest of all kings, David this is, the, this is the nature, this, one of the reasons that this is so important a story and so, so valuable an image in, in, the, in the landscape of Jesus' genealogy, in the landscape of his family heritage. What we're seeing here is that even the best and the brightest of Jesus' life, even the best and the brightest of Jesus' history and family, their, their noblest son, their hero of heroes, their warrior poet, even he could not live up perfectly to the standard. And even he, the man after God's own heart, as it says, David had a heart after God's own heart, the man who was the best and brightest, the, the most glorious of all kings, in, not just in in ancient Near Eastern history, not just in Israel, but in all of history, still David was one of the most amazing, beautiful kings of all time and space, and yet even he was unable to be the truest of all, to live up to the standard. Even he failed miserably in this process. And the power that he was given, the authority that he was allowed, strength, the beauty, even it corrupt, his corruption caused such great injustice. As the story goes, he was, he was uh, leisurely, in his leisure, he was looking about his kingdom and sees her on a rooftop and decides he wants her, and so he sends for her, and she comes, 
What choice did she have? It was, a mis- it was an abuse of powers, and it was a misuse of authority, and he draws her in, takes advantage of her. Economically, she was at the lowest end of the spectrum. We find this out a little bit later, which I'll talk about. And she, and he, and she becomes pregnant through this illicit relationship that David purported. And so he tries to cover up the relationship. He tries to cover up the pregnancy and ends up through a series of failed cover-up schemes. David does. David tries to ultimately cover it up. And so he has her husband killed in battle. Uriah happened to be one of David's best friends. Champion of his army. Noble man faithful husband, committed leader of his forces, and, and, and loyal friend. And David, because nothing else worked, had him put in the heat of the battle and told his captain of that squad, of, of Uriah's squad, send off, you know, and, they knew, and he knew Uriah. He knew him well and, said that, and knew that if he told him to go and, and press in at the, at the, at the har- hardest, hottest part of the battle, if he told him to press in, Uriah would be in the front end of that. And what he told the captain of his guard, he says, when Uriah runs out, have everyone pull back. And he was, he was destroyed. And David went on living with that cover. And so then he took, he took Bathsheba into his home, made, him, made her one of his wives. And time goes on. He lives with this cover-up until one of God's prophets, Nathan, comes to him and confronts him with, his, with the reality of what he's done. And David, and David uh, has this interaction. And it's interesting. I've always found this interesting that the way Nathan confronts him with the evil of his sin, he doesn't confront him with the sexual nature of it. He doesn't confront him with the sense of lust or or uh, or adultery he confronts him with the nature of its injustice the story that nathan tells to david cuz david is unconvicted of his sin un- unconvinced of his need for repentance unconvinced of his need for forgiveness unconvinced of his of how broken and how and, and of the culpability of his own of his own failing david is unconvinced and he's been living in this unconvinced state in this unrepented state for for months and months until nathan the prophet comes to david and tells him this story he says King David, what would you do if you were faced with a man who had a hundred sheep? And and out of the whim of his own life, in order to provide a meal for uh, for wandering travelers in a... a, uh, in a whim, he decides rather than taking one of his own sheep and providing for that feast, 
He takes the, the sheep, the one ewe lamb, the one sheep that, this, that his neighbor had. He had one sheep. He didn't have a hundred or a thousand. He had one small sheep that was so dear to that family, so dear to him. Nathan says this to David, that this man, this neighbor to the rich man who had, a, who had, who had many sheep, he goes to the neighbor and takes his one sheep, which he was so fond of, it was as if it was a part of his family. This is how, this is how dear this animal was, this, this relationship. It was so dear that he draw, had it in his family. And David, the, he says to David, and this, this great rich man with many, many sheep, rather than slaughter one for the feast, he goes and takes this one ewe lamb and takes it to himself and away from this family and slaughters it for the feast. David rises up out of his chair and he says, because Nathan says, what should you do? How do you think about this man? He says, rise up. This man should be killed. This man should be, this man should be condemned. This man should be held responsible for his injustice. And Nathan says the great words of 2 Samuel. He says, you're the man. Where is this man, David said? I will bring justice to this family. I will even the scales. I will. And what Nathan was pointing out to David wasn't the lustful sexual immorality, which it certainly did. And I'm not trying to make less of that. What I'm saying is David's great sin was that he took advantage of a poor man. David's great sin was that he enacted justice. He, he enacted an injustice to, and, and to this, in this cultural way. He did not care for the man who had nothing. He objectified people. He objectified those below him. He let his power corrupt him. And he abused unjustifiably this young woman, and her husband, and brought this, and, and, and ultimately, in order to cover it up, in order to bring about this great deceit, kills his one and true friend. Utter injustice. Utter dysfunction. Here, right here, in the middle of Jesus' genealogy, right here, in the middle of his story that he's discussing, displaying this this is this you know the, even all, all of the all of the names and we could go through all of these names we don't have a whole lot of history on many of the names we do have a good bit of history from the scriptures reliable there therefore in the names of the women but you know when you, we've looked at a number of them we've looked at the at this at Tamar there's a sense where with Tamar if you here if you were here and you were, you took advantage of uh, in the last couple of weeks Tamar is <laughs> You get to that and you go, let's not talk about that. It makes me very uncomfortable to talk about Tamar. And then Ruth, it's a story, it's a wonderful end to a story, but it doesn't start out very well. And you go, uh, I don't want to talk about Ruth. And then Rahab, which, you know, Rahab, Boaz's mother, she was a prostitute. So I, I'm not sure I want to talk about that. And then now we're talking about Uriah's wife and Bathsheba and David's injustice to his, and the murder plot and the, and the, and the objectifying women and the sexual abuse and the, Abuse of power. It's almost like you want to say, I don't want to talk about all that. I, we don't, and, there were, and certainly maybe you have a family like that. I know I have a family like that. I've heard all, I mean, I've heard all the stories. Often you, you hear the stories at Christmas, don't you? You hear the, because I remember sitting around my, my great-grandmother's, uh, my great-grandmother's uh, coffee, not coffee table, uh, dinner table, dining, dining room table, 
on any number of Christmas Eves. And she had six grandchildren, six children, I think. Yeah, six children. And they would all sit there like at a board meeting around the table. And that was layers. If you could get to, if you could get, if you get to sit at the table, that was amazing. Because then you felt really important. But they would sit all around the table, and then, and then the high-level cousins would sit right in between, and then the others and the grandchildren would sit around, and you'd sit in here, and you'd hear the stories talked about. And whoever wasn't at, whoever wasn't at Christmas Eve was talked about. And as soon as someone left Christmas Eve, they were talked about. As a matter of fact, when I, when I first took Becky to introduce her, to that experience when we were leaving to go to Christmas Eve service that night I walked out and she'll tell you the story she says that I told her you know they're talking about you right now I go, she goes really why what did I do you didn't do anything they're just talking about you in relation to me and in relation to what's going on and what are they talking about what's what's the gossip what's the thing that's talked about it's the names that aren't mentioned it's the stories that aren't explained it's the injustices that are enacted in families that we mention but don't talk about this the seedy underbelly of who we are and Jesus puts that seedy underbelly right out front and says my family is 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 as saturated with injustice as your family he doesn't hide. He doesn't put King David's name out there with a star next to it, highlighted, top in his class, accepted at Yale, first in the 100 meters. No, he puts David's name out there and says, yeah, he, as great as he was, his heart was after my heart, but his heart was still wretched. And he was an unjust king in this regard. He was corrupt. And even the best and the brightest couldn't be the best and the brightest. The thing about this tells us that there, that, that there is great injustice in this world that needs to be righted. And the, the wonderful thing about this is that, Jesus, is that Jesus mentioning this imagery, it isn't just about the injustice. It's about the fact that this name, the name of Uriah's wife, the name of Eshu, also reminds the readers, it reminds you and me that injustice isn't the end of the story, but that it goes on to experience forgiveness. David was a warrior poet. He was a, he was a king and a songwriter. And one of his two most amazing so songs that he wrote is song... 32 and Song 51. Songs where he repents before the Lord of his great sin, where he, where he acknowledges what he has done, where he, where he displays his sense of culpability, where he talks about his need for forgiveness. And just as Noah was mentioning this morning, he didn't see it as a, as I have to go or a, I don't want to go or, or confession leads me to shame. David, David in these Psalms reflects the reality of, of what confession ought to be is that I get to confess so that I can receive God's forgiveness. And that confession is the bridge through which forgiveness comes to me. 
in the power of the gospel, in the power of God's grace, is that he longs to forgive his children. He longs to show them mercy. He longs to wash away their sins, our sins, and even the sins of the great king who comes to him. That's why Nathan came. That's why Nathan confronted. That's why Nathan brought him to the reality of the injustice he he had enacted so that David could go to the Father and receive the grace that was necessary. Often, you and I were so embarrassed, were so overwhelmed, were so discouraged by the darkness of our lives, we're so avoidant that we avoid the sin of our lives because we're so ashamed of it. And, and certainly, sin does result in shame. Certainly, sin does result in a certain embarrassment. That's what we see in our first parents in Adam and Eve. One of the first things that happened was that they were embarrassed. They were ashamed. They were covering up. They were hiding from themselves and from everyone else. That is the nature of sin, but it is also... that's it. That's the thing about sin. That's the thing about injustice and about our brokenness, that it leads us into a dark, isolated place. Shame leads us into a dark and isolated place. That is not good. It is a byproduct of sin. Shame is a byproduct of sin. It's not something, it's not meant to, it's it's not a healing, restorative thing. Shame is not a healing, restorative element. It is a byproduct of our brokenness, a byproduct of the rebellion which we have enacted to Jesus. And if we live in that shame, if we let shame win, if we let shame define what this process is, if we think that shame is a means by which God is trying to get us to himself, we lose sight of what the gospel is. Shame will isolate. Shame will... Shame will condemn. Shame will lead you to a dark, cold place that will spiral you down into nothingness. And that's not what we see in the heart of David. He was confronted by Nathan, not to, sh- not to shame him, but to lead him to a Savior who, ca- who takes away his shame. And we see this in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, both of which display in very, in very real terms what the gospel gives us. He gives us, we own what we have done so that God can tangibly, practically let us experience his grace, that it can be a conduit. Confession and repentance are a conduit through which the grace of God comes to me, through which cleanliness comes, through which a sense of confidence is restored. Psalm 51 Turn to that just for the sake of giving you some sense of it here, if I can find it. Cleanse me, O Lord, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. 
These are the images that David resounds again in song as he writes the nature of what forgiveness, the nature of what confession leads me to. It leads me to a clean heart. It leads me to rejoicing. It leads me to joy. It leads me to a sense of hopefulness. It leads me to a sense of usefulness. Is That's what confession leads me to. That Owning my injustice, owning my culpability. Own, and often the reason you and I, we tend to avoid anything that looks dark in our lives. We tend to avoid rather than it leading us to a sense of vulnerability. One writer, I think it was Flannery O'Connor, the great short storyist, Southern short storyist, she said, the, the best way to avoid Christ is to avoid our sin. Be good. Avoid what you, what might you know to be true when reality says that the more I can discover my need of a Savior, He is willing to provide my salvation through, that I can discover more and more nuances of the darkness of my heart, not in a way of shaming, not in a way of isolating and driving me to a cold, guilty place, but to a place of repentance, to a place of surrender, to a place of of owning my culpability so that I can see and experience the cleanliness, the joyfulness, the, the sense of restoration that God provides through the person of his son. And David walks away from this psalm. At the end of it, he walks away from Psalm 51 saying, you, you, you know, you, 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 sacrifices you might want, but that's not really what you want. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. What you really want, Lord, is my, is my utter devotion of life. What you want is my utter praise for what you've accomplished through your, through your redeeming work. The story of Bathsheba is a story of amazing guilt, amazing injustice, but, but a story of amazing forgiveness. The display of a God who can make a slate clean. Most of, the scriptures was writ- Most of the scripture was written by adulterers and murderers. Moses wrote much of the Old Testament, murderer. David, adulterer and a murderer. Paul, New Testament, a murderer. These are the people that God has made slates clean for and then made them useful to his kingdom. Even the best of it, even the best of them, David, was an utter wretch. And when we own that, we become useful. We become forgiven. We become rejoicing. We, it's a conduit through which we can experience what God has done for us. And, not, and, that, and if forgiveness, here's the thing. If forgiveness was the end of the story, it would be great. It would be amazing, but the story goes on because it isn't just forgiveness. It, forgiveness, the gospel, doesn't just get us back to zero. The gospel of God's grace doesn't simply change and clean the past that I have accomplished. The gospel gives me something to, in the future and says, I'm going to give you a righteousness of Christ that cannot be ruined going forward. I'm going to give you in your bank. I'm not just going to forgive your debts. I'm going to give you a wealth going forward that you can't outuse. And we see that displayed in, in the restoration of the story of Bathsheba. Um, 
the way the story goes, the way the, 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 way the experience was, is that David, David was confronted by, Na, by Nathan uh, almost a year into the process of, uh, of, having, uh, of having committed this. And David repents. Excuse me. You recall that when David took advantage of Bathsheba, it resulted in the, it resulted in the uh, the uh, the birth of a child, or it resulted in the conception of a child. That child, um, that child was uh, that, that child. Um, David lost that child in, at birth, and Bathsheba lost her first child at birth. David mourned the loss of that child, and he ultimately realized that you know these, this part of this brokenness could be the result of what he had done. And so he lives, but he says he said in his great prayer in Second Samuel, as a as a result of him mourning and grieving over the loss of his first child, illicitly born, that child had no it was no fault of that child that that occurred. He loved that child and that wanted to welcome that child into the world, and yet it was lost. He was lost, and David said in his great prayer of forgiveness. He will not come to me, but I will go to him. David knew in that moment that he, although he lost his child at birth, his child was ushered into the throne of heaven, and David would one day go and be, in, be able to be with him. Even though he never met him on earth, God saved him from the tragedy of this world, the son, and took him right to heaven. And David said, one day I'll go to be with him. The story goes on that David and Bathsheba had a second child. God redeems this family. God redeems. He doesn't just forgive David for his injustice. Out of the, out of the soil of David's sin, out of the soil of such utter injustice, out of the story of such shame and guilt and seedy underbelly out of that amazing humiliation god redeems a, a, a dead child and gives this family a new child whose name is solomon and the and the lineage of the once and future king continues through the line of this broken story through the line of this of the seedy injustice through that experience, Solomon is born. The great king who was a mess. The rich, opulent Solomon who built the temple, who built the, who built the palace of Jerusalem. Utter brokenness in his life too, and yet God's redeeming and continuing the story. It's not a dead-end tale, but God takes our injustice, forgives it out of our shame, and then restores us to the great use of his kingdom and gives us more than we ever could imagine. There's a passage that God brought to my attention through this week. I've been sharing with people because I can't get it out of my head. It's in Psalm 126, verse 5. That he who sows seeds in tears will reap a harvest of joy. That he who goes out sowing in tears, will reap with shouts of joy. 
God doesn't let tears be the end of the story. Tears of shame, tears of guilt, tears of regret. He forgives and then moves the harvest to joy. Sons saved and taken to heaven. Sons born to live out beautiful restoration from seeds of shame. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of hope. This is, this is the joy of what Christ has accomplished. It isn't just Friday on the cross. It is Sunday of resurrection, day by day by day. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Pray that you would convince us, convince us that you are a God who wants to restore out of our injustice, wants to forgive us out of our shame, that you have given us a righteousness that cannot be damaged, spoiled, or faded by anything that we accomplish. And therefore, we can live with hope, live with, live with joy, live with a sense of intention that change and glory to your name can result. Lord, do that as we own our injustice, as we seek you for forgiveness, as we trust you for restoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.